State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this second season episode, we speak with Edward Champion, managing editor at Reluctant Habits, about the state of audio dramas part two and how they've progressed since the previous conversation. Reluctant Habits is devoted to books, films, arts, technology, and culture. It has been singled out by the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Guardian, The Los Angeles Times, The Daily Telegraph, Details, and numerous other outlets of questionable repute. Let's begin. Hi, Ed. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing, Vai? I'm good, thanks. It's been quite some time since we last spoke. How's things been since the past few years? Um, You mentioned you were working on the second season of your audio drama. How's that going so far? It's going very well. I actually, you got me as I've just finished editing the rough cut of page 21 of the sixth rough cut of the second season. It's very exciting. I've had a few beta listeners tell me that this is the best audio drama I've done, clips from this particular episode, and we're moving to a fascinating um, uh, direction that is somewhere between emotional intimacy and experimental audio, and it's all very exciting. So, I want to, let's touch upon that a bit later about the experimental audio, because that's interesting, um, note that you point out. But before we d- dive deep in it, for those who don't know much about you, it would be great just to get a bit of background, Ed. Sure, I would be happy to go ahead and fill you in. I'm jacked on coffee right now, so hopefully this will uh, come across as vaguely coherent. But anyway, uh, my name is Edward Champion. I have been basically a veteran writer by dint of doing this for pretty much most of my adult life. I have also been a podcaster. I had a podcast in my literary days uh, called The Batsugundo Show, in which I talked with uh, numerous authors. And in the last three years, I have basically marshaled most of my energies towards The Gray Area, which is an audio drama entailing an interconnected anthology series. So all of the stories can be experienced on their own, but as you listen, and this will become even more apparent in season two, you will see that the stories have been connected all along. I've written and directed 27 radio plays now, including the Yellow Wallpaper adaptation I did for Jack Ward of the Sonic Society, which um, was basically a modern-day adaptation of the Charlotte Perkins Gilman story. And I'm told that it proved so popular that it was taught in five educational environments, which is a huge honor. I've uh, that actually is the first story I've adapted uh, rather than coming up with my own crazy and weird tales. Uh, But it was uh, also me moving into a new recording realm because we recorded with four actors, the four principals of that tale all at once in a studio. And it was a tremendously fun experience. Um, That is going to be re-released with season two. So there'll be 17 new episodes coming out. Well, 16 and a sort of uh, rehash putting the yellow wallpaper under the gray area umbrella. And we're shooting probably for an early 2020 release at this point. But um, I'm trying to edit. I'm basically editing every day while also sustaining my own well-being and uh, doing what we all have to do with this crazy little thing called life, uh, which is basically, you know, keep the uh, lights on and the rent paid and all that. So, Yeah, I remember last time for the first season, that was like pretty much coming out of your your own pocket from memory. And how how have you grown from that experience and how are you 
like you said in your own words, keeping the lights on at the same time? Well, it's still coming from my own pocket at this particular point, although I have been in talks with uh, various people for partnerships, and we do actually have a unique strategy that we're going to be employing for season two. Because many of the stories end on cliffhangers, and I'm betting that people are not going to want to wait two weeks for the next episode. So the reason I'm getting everything done in advance is so... The show will continue to be free, possibly supported by ads. I have no problem um, doing that. I've always wanted people to listen to the show, and I've always wanted it to be accessible. I've listened to criticism of other shows that have gone behind the audible paywall and uh, various you know, other qualms by people who don't understand. Well, look, audio drama takes a lot of time and takes a lot of money to produce. Not as much as, say, a film production, but nevertheless, there are costs. So what we're going to be doing is introducing a season two pass so that if you don't want to wait for the next exciting installment, then you can go ahead and buy a season pass and there'll be some additional bells and whistles, kind of like buying a Blu-ray, where you'll be able to have access to the scripts. We'll probably have some behind-the-scenes stuff And that's essentially the model that I'm going to be experimenting with, with the second season. And I think based off of the listenership that we could probably get enough revenue coming in to justify making, I mean, well, the third season's going to be made one way or another. I'm just a very stubborn and resilient man. Plus, this is just too much fun. But the plan is, is to see what we do with the season pass and the combination of that with advertising and a few other things I'm talking about with various people. Uh, that are still in rough draft phase right now. We're still discussing, as they say. But uh, basically, that's that's basically where where we're at. And I mean, you know, if uh, Nicholas Qua can make a six-figure living doing the Hot Pod newsletter, then um, I think we can probably uh, generate revenue by not even having that large of an audience. One of the f- most exciting aspects of working in digital media and doing things independently is number one, niche audiences are really, uh, if you play your cards right and you strategize and you reach out to people and you have conversations, uh, you will find loyal supporters of your operation. Uh, I have never been one to be a fan of capitalism in, in general, although we have to do keep the lights on, so to speak. But uh, I'm more interested in in having personal relationships with my listeners. One other thing you get with a season two pass is uh, you have the option of getting a telephone call from yours truly, and I'll be happy to talk to you about the show and ask you about your life. It's sort of similar to what Elizabeth Warren did in her campaign, but uh, Anna Sale of Death, Sex, and Money has also been doing that, and she has managed to raise, I think... Fifty or sixty thousand dollars or something through her show, or maybe more. I, I don't know the exact figures, but I know she had a considerable number of donors. So the big challenge will be to get the listenership up and convert some of that listenership into people who are going to be interested in the season pass, who understand that I am offering a good faith covenant of keeping the show free while simultaneously, well, I, I've always insisted on paying people and I've always insisted on being realistic about costs. So that is presently the plan for the second season. I'm really excited to be venturing into this particular territory because if we can actually get this thing uh, basically 
uh, self-sufficient, that means we can do it with other audio dramas. And that means that I can start expanding my attentions to helping other people out, to getting other exciting shows uh, under a potential sort of umbrella. Uh, that You're would be a network, essentially, just like a yeah, building a network. Um, other people would say building an empire, but I don't have such Napoleonic tendencies. I'm uh, I'm uh, just a guy who uh, really loves working with actors and loves telling stories and loves hearing from people. I heard from a listener last night. Uh, this is the amazing thing about audio drama. Who basically offered a description of how one of the characters in season one looked and walked. I mean, she, she could hear the character talking, but basically I got this elaborate description and, and it's so such an honor when the work I do to really create vivid, chewy three-dimensional characters results in someone uh, being able to use their imagination to think about this particular character. And, and, and that's ultimately the thing that that has always driven me as uh, as an artist, as even a journalist, and as someone who has in the past done a variety of creative things, it's about what do we do to sustain meaningful bonds of emotional intimacy through art? What do we do to uh, actually create meaningful human connections with our audience? I don't view an audience as a metric. I view an audience as people. And that's that's just a better way of of dealing with this sort of crazed world of conundrums and predicaments, you know? I mean, you know, you're yeah. a person, I'm a person. Let's relate to each other as people. And to keep an operation going, let's try to use some of that, some of those basic human notions so that and, and just be honest about stuff. And and uh, I that's that's I I think I'm rambling here, but does that answer your question? I hope. Yeah, that, that, that's it does. Um, and I think yeah, I think it's important to know how. I think the positioning of how you're offering that incentive for monetization is important because you have, on one hand, like people who might position, like you said, Elizabeth Warren might have a people might have it as a patronage model. They're all doing the same thing, though, right? But it's just how you present it. So. And I think, and I think the fact that you're trying to look at it as more of a freemium as well—that's that's gonna hopefully as well incentivize people to eventually pay if they want to get quick access to everything. So, well, look at it this way: I mean, if you can get a thousand people to pay fifty dollars, that's yeah. fifty thousand yeah. dollars. It's possible to get a thousand people. I, I personally, I am not. I'm not obviously not doing this for the money. I've never, I mean, my only real material possessions are books, which I can't stop buying. Other than that, aside from a couple, aside from having sometimes nice nights out, I live a life where I really don't need a lot of creature comforts. Uh, I, I just need to be able to be able to pay my bills and to, to stay alive. And uh, I know a lot of other people go into artistic realms looking for the big kill or looking for some obscene profit. And, you know, my answer to them is, why don't you just become a doctor or a lawyer? We're artists. Now, having said that, I do believe that artists should be paid. Uh, I've certainly paid every single actor who has been involved with this production. And uh, I've also treated them as artists, meaning that 
they are going to continue to get roles having um the uh, that are going to challenge them as performers i pay attention very close attention to where they're changing and how they're emoting or if there's something that they're doing that they want to do or if they are moving into a direction that i am uh, encouraging but other directors are not so like for example um i i have um i i've, I've cast comedic actors in dramatic roles uh because i have seen um a level of seriousness and and human interest and emotional intimacy that is being tapped into their comedic work but that actually can go into a into meaningful depth that this that basically deals with the human predicament of the of the human heart being in conflict with each with itself as as william faulkner famously said and i also have seen dramatic actors or actors who are very serious and intense and i do i look at them and i see how they are funny and so i gradually make them more funny and uh or i give them a chance to do comedy it's sort of like uh meryl streep went for a long period of time be, being this intense dramatic actor and and she can do any accent and she's incredible she's marvelous she's a genius but when she started doing comedy and she did it very well uh it was fascinating when people started to resent her a little bit for that although she did a very good job at doing that i mean performers i think your, your duty in addition to creating a situation in which um artists can can get something and can get paid and ideally you can mushroom that into something where they can get completely paid although you know speaking for myself i am uh i am one like anybody else who uh gobbles up little gigs here and there in order to sort of uh, uh, keep the lights on, so to speak. More sounding like a Motel 6 commercial. Jesus Christ. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, but the thing is, is, is from one consistent artistic project that has a little bit of monetization attached to it, uh, you can only grow that further. Uh, John Waters, uh, you know, once said, I mean, in addition to being a, uh, an outlandish filmmaker. He's also a very good writer. And uh, you should read his essays if you haven't. But uh, he basically said, you only need two people to make a following. And of course, not, not, your, not, your, not, your, uh, not your family, <laughs> but like two people to make a following. If, and the way you go about making a following is to create a situation which the people who work with you are utterly crazy about what you do and being involved with your project, and then they will tell their friends, and then they will actually go ahead and by word of mouth, something will eventually spread. I don't believe even in our age of content saturation, uh, of being inundated with the paradox of choice, that it's impossible for a niche operation like mine, or any niche operation for that matter, to find their niche. It's just a matter of being mindful about who is in your corner who is supporting you who wants to support you and reaching out directly with them and having conversations with them i love talking with people i love talking with you i i love going out into a bar and talking with a, a brand new stranger people are fascinating and i think that a basic sort of listening to 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 who digs you and who who is on in your corner will make your life as a human being 
and as an entrepreneur, I suppose, a lot easier because you won't have to prove to anyone how good you are. The people will flock directly in your corner by, by, by you being you, if that makes any sense. And, and I guess to circle back around to the original query of, the, of your question, which was about monetization, I use that basic human strategy, which I use in my regular life in attempt to create better outreach for the gray area and also, you know, to to bring people into this who can su- help support the show at a reasonable level. I, I, I'm not I'm not going to be asking for that much money. It's like the cost of going out for a for a couple of burritos or a couple of drinks. You know, I mean that's nothing. I I I support art all the time. Anybody who I uh, who I think is amazing, I I'm going to support because I know how hard it is to make that. And uh, but I think that other producers and other people who venture into these waters. They don't, they seem to resent the idea. I mean, it's understandable to resent the idea of promotion. I don't really like online promotion, but I sure as hell love talking and listening to people and finding out what their lives are like and uh, and using that not in a mercenary way, but more of an improvisational and instinctive way if they like the show to see if I can you know bring them on either in a creative capacity or even possibly supporting the show. But I'm not going to um I'm not going to give them an ultimatum or anything. I mean people have to have the the choice. And if you are who you are and you you have the basis of a following, my feeling is that uh the the John Waters metaphor of the following. My feeling is that you can probably create a situation over time and uh, that will that will in the long run be very good for your operation. I, I, I hope that makes sense, man. Because I'm like does. Jack. I want to again just give you let's look at it in the biggest scheme of things, right? So, you know, back in the day, a lot of things were more institutionalized. So, if you wanted to be an actor, if you wanted to be a former, you had to sort of go to the ranks of certain areas. And I guess with the ability of digital media and I guess being able to create companion content and podcasts, I guess that's been able to lower the barrier and get people access. How do you think more successful artists, you know, you know, they're still being able to tap into that creative side and become an entrepreneur. How do you think they've been able to be more successful? And do you think those artists went through the ranks first in order to get to that, to be able to create their platform? I know you speak about the human side and, and we speak about trying to, you know, not be too, trying to not take too much from our listeners in, in money and stuff. But I think to some point you have to go some, a lot of those uh, artists have been able to go through institutions and learn how, it, how it's run from a commercial sense in order to then make it for their own. Do you think that that's been the cause of why a lot of artists have been able to do it on their own now? Or do you think people can do it on the, not needing, needing those institutions to do it on their own? And do you think that's the cause of why we've been able to, professionals have been able to do, become successful on their own, right? No, you raised some very interesting points there, and I think I know what you're getting at. I think the internet has drastically altered the notion of what a gatekeeper is. You're right to point to institutional support in the past, but I think that we're now in this very exciting transitional phase where you don't necessarily need the institutional support. Hell, man, I ran a literary podcast for 11 years. 
I got everybody from David Lynch to John Waters to John Updike to Octavia Butler. I mean, I talked with some of the, the greatest minds on the planet. I was very privileged to do that. And I did that entirely as an independent operation. I did. I was able to eventually at one point get advertising for the show. And uh, between doing my podcast and doing my freelance writing, I was able to survive in, in New York, which is one of the tougher towns, although now California, which I'm from, is actually more expensive than us. But that's, a, that's an aside. The point here is, is that the reason why these people, uh, the reason why the podcast grew, my original nonfiction podcast, and the reason why these people wanted to be on my program is because I offered vigorous, specific questions uh, in which I did extraordinary research. I not only read the latest book of an author, I also often read their entire oeuvre. So I did that, but I also did a lot of research because I didn't want this to be the kind of program where you come on and you basically answer the same questions that you've been asked for the, the entirety of your tour. So uh, as such, I would always find some unusual angle that nobody else had uh, considered. I, 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 I read pretty much every other interview that was out there. And because of this, it was, it was what I'm saying, which is appealing to both the people who are part of your project as human beings and appealing to your listeners as human beings. I've strayed a bit from your original thrust, which is, okay, how can any artist or entertainer or publisher survive when, I mean, what, what is the role of institutional support? Well, here's the thing. It, institutional support comes knocking on your door when you start to make waves on social media. And uh, to be honest, man, I, I, a lot of what I've done throughout the course of my life has been incredibly instinctive and accidental. It is generally following my instincts, doing something that is different, doing something that that is unusual and that is thus able to stand out in a way that is unlike, say, your vanilla New York Times content, or uh, although the New York Times does do good work, but you know what I mean. Uh, the, 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 ma the, the, th the fact of the matter is, is there is a tremendous hunger for bold, different content right now. The, the great, you know, the paradox of choice is not so much a bad thing uh, in, in when you consider the fact that people want to consume the culture that they want to consume. It's become a little bit more specialized about what you decide to like. And so if you are doing something in a niche way that is just has high standards, that is something that speaks in a distinct, unique, possibly idiosyncratic or eccentric voice, it is, if it's any good, it is going to find some kind of an audience. And as such, I have never really worried about institutional support in my really odd career because the material that I put together, the environment I painstakingly create with my actors, which is very chill, very relaxed, very open to emotional intimacy in which I am going to talk about anything in my life, no matter how embarrassing, no matter how humiliating, in order to get the most authentic performance 
and 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 also to to form a meaningful bond with an actor because and most of my a lot of my actors involved with this have become my friends it's been a, a wonderful life-changing project i i'm i'm tremendously happy with this but the point is is that it's also but it's also unlike anything else and so if institutional support comes for the gray area uh, as I mean, I got some media attention for the Batsegunda show, my previous podcast. Yeah. Uh, it, it comes and goes. You can't really control that. What you can control is what you put into your operation. You know, and, and, and the only thing you can really do is is be resilient, stay stay persistent in terms of putting out new content, and also never ever allowing the experience of making content to be boring or to be a slog i mean it is work i mean i i work very hard on everything i've ever done but if i ever get the sense that it is not fun for me i'm gonna quit i i mean i don't i think an audience detects when the artist is not really involved and and, and is not working to evolve i think once you have an audience you're going to grow an audience if everyone understands that you are all moving into uh, an evolutionary direction. And with the story I'm now editing for season two, I I've hit a tilting point in which I have gone deeper in a way that I, I never have with this audio drama form. And it's extremely exciting. And I know that when the audience hits that particular point, they are going to be as surprised as I am in as I'm making this right now, as I'm talking with you, I mean, this is delayed and, and uh, it will eventually get released l- later in 2020. But but that to me is uh, it, it means that there's a certain instinctive truth to this particular operation. You don't have to worry about institutional support if you are working like this. Institutional support will come to you. Your audience will come to you. I, I, I and, and a lot of it is just really just engaging your audience as human beings you send me an email i will respond you know you you interviewed this is the second time you've interviewed me i'm happy to talk with you uh it's it's everyone has a story everyone has a need and we have a duty as functional human beings and as functional artists to sustain those connections in the most meaningful possible way as as much as time presents itself i mean fortunately i I don't get all that much email to I mean to totally subsume me because I'm not I'm like but I get enough but I get enough where it can sometimes be a lot and I have to devote like a, an entire like half day to to answering it all but I do answer anybody who gets in contact with me and uh, and sometimes I will meet these people in person uh, you know I I extend an invite I, I could do this right now but if the show ever gets big I don't know if I could do this but but right now I'm at a level where I can extend an invite. Hey, if you're in Brooklyn, uh, let's meet up for a drink sometime. I, I am. I'm not above that. I'm interested in sustaining and cultivating those connections. And the reality is, is because of the niche dynamic I mentioned earlier, where you only need 1,000 people to pay fifty dollars. That's you can really. You don't have to do. I mean, that's not that much to ask of anyone to to check in on those 1,000 people. It's it really... Is, there, there, is some, there is some content fatigue, though, but you're right in saying that Yeah, uh, the commitment isn't as much as it used to be, but at the same time as well, we have, you have to balance that out with what other people are already consuming, the subscriptions they have, so... 
Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, look, it, it, it can be fatiguing, but like, I don't know. I I've, it's never felt fatiguing to me because, because if, if someone likes what I do, I mean, you know, you'd have to be a real dick not to, not to like be grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I just live a life, man, of total gratitude. And, uh, and I try to pay it back to anyone who has taken the time out of their busy schedule to listen to my, you know, rather unusual production, although it's entertaining too. I mean, but, uh, but I, you know, and, and cause you never know. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's, I, I feel really weird here talking to you about this because I'm sort of conflating how I go about my living my life with, with uh, nefarious business terms. And I was about to say the law of averages here, but like, I don't know. I, I, I just try to operate in business much as I do in life. And I just try to be true to me. And, and by being true to me, I'm able to respect and honor others. And it does tend to work out. And I, and I do work and correspond with and hang out with some really incredible people. And the thing is, is we're all at various states of, of, of our careers. And, uh, but if you sustain those meaningful connections, I suppose it's, it's, I, I hate to use the word networking, but it's, it's networking in, in a more human manner, in a more invested manner. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't have connections with these people because I want to get something out of them. Yeah. I'm more interested in, in their, in who they are, what their lives are. I'm not, I mean, I want to be clear on that. And it, it sounds like I'm being mercenary in, in outlining what should be a basic sort of straightforward human task it's like you know you run if you run a bodega right if you're uh, or a convenience store you are a proprietor you probably see like dozens of people on a regular basis and you develop relationships with those particular people it's a small business thing you know if you're really savvy like you know sometimes you you end up friends with like either the bodega guy or the bartender or or or, or what have you this is kind of a small business strategy i suppose a social straw strong a social small business strategy that I suppose I am transposing to uh, content and audio drama and podcasts, uh, if that makes any sense. No, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. And I think I just want to also touch upon this point in, our, in the mainstream culture. You know, on one side, you've got the main institutions that, that are sort of rehashing a lot of content this year, particularly like with Disney, with the um, live stuff and then we've got you know individual artists like yourself and podcast creators where they're trying to go more fiction they're trying to go more conversation reboot more. culture yeah i i i let out a big sigh for that because because to my mind a lot of the reboots are very dissatisfying and and stagnant and don't actually like run with the ball forward which anyway i'm so, yeah, so well, that, i'm starting yeah. up for you because it's just like a general dismay towards uh towards a commitment to to having an original artistic vision, which is like, God, can't we, can't we, can't we just, ah, anyway. You're a purist now. So, so I appreciate, appreciate you venting that out. And it's good to hear that your perspective on that. I'm just trying to think like, in terms of even in capturing new audiences, my question is in terms of capturing new audiences, do you think there's a need to rehash content? And do you think it's appropriate at certain stages to rehash content? Or do you think that you just have to create taking an approach of creating companion content and then get people to look at the archives of what you've done in order to then capture those new audiences. Yeah. That, and that's an interesting. Okay. So 
Let me answer that question in, in a couple of by offering a couple of points. The first point is is that as artists, we have one or two or three stories or themes we constantly return to. Everybody who toils in art uh, has that one thing. Like for me, I have discovered over the course of the run of the gray area that I am very much into issues of empathy, compassion, respect, and love, and all of the all of the problems of living with that. That is my my major major theme, and and that's fine. It's it's a it's a good universal theme to have. Now the question is is like if there is a particular theme that you discover as an artist, how do you go about telling stories? that don't feel like a rehash. Well, I think that it comes with number one, insisting upon standards that beckon you to tell more original stories. Number two, going deeper, taking more risks, evolving. Because as you evolve, uh, you will actually be able to tell stories with more nuances and those particular nuances will beget other stories. In terms of how I've approached this issue with the gray area, what I have done is, so season one, you listen to season one of the gray area, and essentially they're all seemingly separate stories, but if you, but there has been a careful design from the very beginning, and that is that a character who is on a voicemail will appear in another story, or the psychiatrist who Greg talks with a in, in, in Disassociation, a very small mini-episode, is the same psychiatrist named Emma who stars in Compassion Fatigue and who also uh, appears in two stories in season two. I have little uh, bits here and there where um, I, I create these little Easter eggs of ver very much world-building where an actor who comes in on a, on, as, a, as a lead or a supporting role on one story will also probably record a few lines that I have in, in a few other stories. I'm also revisiting incidents. Like uh, in the story I'm working on right now, there is in Compassion Fatigue, at the very beginning of that story, we have this woman named Jenna who is describing getting into an altercation with a subway preacher and reading Elizabeth Hardwick out loud. Now, we only hear that story from her testimony for, uh, to, the, to the psychiatrist, right? Uh, in the story I'm now editing, we then get to see the entire scope of what happened in that scene in which we hear how she reacts. And in hearing how she reacts, we revisit that scene in a way that creates a new context that is not a rehash, but that actually adds an additional character detail that actually says makes you go, well, wait a minute, I thought, this character had her shit together at the end of compassion fatigue no maybe maybe she doesn't maybe she is not telling the entire truth about about her dispute with this subway preacher who incidentally is played by me <laughs> uh, uh, oddly enough but um but this is the way in which you can get an audience really excited about your your work and, and it's also how you just keep building world upon world upon world. Now, I'm very fortunate with the gray area in that I have interdimensional portals that can take you anywhere in time and space. So we have stories in season two that are set in the 22nd century, the near future. We go back at one point to uh, pre-World War I England. It's, you know, sky's the limit. And uh, there's uh, the other thing I did with season two is, is that I was very mindful about 
wanting to get outside of myself because a lot of the stories I wrote in season one came from personal experiences, and that's totally mm-hmm. fine. But I uh, there's a six-part story I did it, that is an epic love story between two women that takes place between ni- 1992 all the way to 2025. That's told in six parts. It's 400 pages. It's it's a cat wow. a cast of thousands, so to speak. Now, in order to actually like get you know, I'm a straight white cis guy writing about two women. I'm a, initially I'm saying to myself, "Oh Jesus Christ, Ed, check your privilege, dude." So what I ended up doing for this is I went and took the time to uh, interview uh, uh, very informally. I just I went to like bars where. Uh, where lesbians are often propagated. I went to actually, I was even allowed to do a few, there's only three Manhattan, uh, there's only three lesbian bars left in Manhattan and I was able to get into uh, two of them. And uh, these uh, women were, thought it was a hoot that this crazy, you know, jovial bald guy came in. I just bought them drinks and I listened to their stories. And uh, and basically, I I soaked up enough culture to understand their dynamics. Although I did live in San Francisco and I had many uh, gay friends there, but I wanted to do this right. I didn't want to treat this this subculture as something that was cheap or trivial. I really wanted to revere it and respect it and um, and really get it right. So I just started picking up slang. I started picking up like little dynamics. Things like you know, uh, well, uh, some uh, you know, like one very co- very common old school lesbian term is U-Haul, where basically uh, you are uh, if, if if you're dating someone and uh, suddenly the, woman, the you're basically like uh, living in the first apartment on the second date, that's you're U-Hauling basically. Little mm-hmm. fun things like that. Um, and uh, then I, with all this research I did, which I mean, and I basically used a bunch of my old journalism moves for this, which is I did the same thing: canvas a world so that it becomes second nature to you, and and you instantly are able to access it instinctively without having to overthink it. And uh, uh, once I had this down, I wrote the draft, sent it to some beta readers who were LGBTQ. And I was called an honorary dyke by uh, by a couple, a number of them, saying, "Ed, damn it, you really did it." I'm like, "Yes, you know, that's what I wanted." I did the same thing for another story that was set in Wyoming. I had a blast calling people in Wyoming and talking with them about their lives, and uh, just really taking the time out to know, like, okay, there's a Wyoming, Colorado thing. Uh, learning a lot about the slang, learning about how people live there. Uh, their, their culture. I mean, I didn't want to be that New York asshole who comes in and assumes that he knows another subculture. No, yeah, I, I, that is that is arrogance and that is hackery. That 100%. is, yeah, you know, you have to respect and love the people that you're writing about, even when they are monstrous characters. You have to love them, and if you don't love them, if you don't have the passion for them, then. How the hell do you expect your art, uh, your audience to be passionate about what you do? How the hell do you even expect to like monetize or build a, a following or build a situation in which like people are actually going to want to listen to your stuff on your own terms, let alone pay for it? You know, you have a duty as an artist and I would argue as a businessman to get the people who are listening to your show uh, to, to, to treat them with intelligence and respect, to do the basic craftsmanship of, of, of putting together a tale that is meaningful, that is emotional, that is 
closely studied. That is, you know, as I said uh, earlier, I, you know, that is the difference between like niche content that dies and niche content that thrives and maybe actually turns into something that does get picked up by these so-called institutions. Although, you know, these institutions will probably never understand me. That's fine. I got people who listen to the show. That's not why I do this. I'm not doing this to 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 gravitate into into some sort of you know magazine cover. No, I don't think any real artist does this for that. But you see my point here. This is also kind of my strong, very strong, and very passionate argument against reboot and rehash culture. Okay, you know what? Go ahead, chase an audience that likes say the latest marvel you know reboot or whatever okay it may work for now but that's a short-term game i am not i don't write i don't write or make things for short-term gain i write things that hopefully will be picked up later it's like you know many of the think of think of your favorite filmmaker Mm -hmm. chances are their work was not really understood until 20 years after it came out. And that is because it functioned as art. It, and sometimes, you know, it takes other people time to catch up with what you're doing. That to me is far more thrilling than just asking me to turn into a goddamn jukebox, punching up greatest hits. I, I am after the best way I can create an original story that means something, that actually is filled with human truth. I, I, that, that, and how how can I get better doing that? How can I actually like find new angles of existence that I've never considered before? And that surprised me. I can tell you, man, I know these stories inside and out, but as I'm editing them, they're surprising the hell out. They are absolutely, and they're and that's those they're surprising me because they're they're forcing me to to examine and do things in the sound design and the editing that create an open an open interpretation for, for many of the ambiguities that I'm discovering. And it's good for everyone. That to me is the ultimate mission. That to me is the, is, is going to be infinitely more compelling than rebooting and doing the same goddamn story over and over Marvel superhero movies, New York gets blown up, blah, yada, yada, yada. I, I could care less. There's enough. Yeah. There's enough out there to, our world's not as black or white as, as, it's being portrayed and there's a lot more that we can do by doing that. And that's why you're seeing the likelihood, like you can see the success of even more people on YouTube or those channels that they get millions and millions of downloads per episode because yeah, look, dude, look at that conversation. Yeah. That Terminator movie sunk like a dog. Uh, there's been, a, yeah. have you, have you, there's all these movies that are coming out. that are like rebooting, like popular franchises, but they're, they're number one. The audiences have, have moved on because they're, you're doing the same thing you did before. They're not going, you know, what they are after is something fresh. I mean, look, look at television. Television right now is the best that it has ever been, I would argue. You, yep. Because it's suddenly the, the showrunners and the producers have the freedom to actually explore these emotional predicaments. And so it's called the golden age of television, largely because artists are finally more or less left to be able to do what the hell they want to do. And and to to do those to, to tell those stories that really tap into to human emotions. I mean, yes. think of think of your favorite movies and your favorite books. Ultimately, they spoke to you because you related to them emotionally, not because they were cool. Maybe maybe they were cool, but ultimately there was something about them that hit you in the heart. Uh, you know, unless you are some sort of like cold clinical sociopath or something. I don't know, but but by and large. 
I would say that most, I mean, the, the stuff that really hits you and sticks with you. And it could be like, I mean, look, I'm a big fan of, of the movie Big Trouble Little China. I can watch that damn thing over and over again. If it's on TV, I'm going to watch it, you know? Mm. But that speaks to me because it, it, it actually has a really sophisticated, beneath all the fun, and it's very fun, but beneath all that, all the, all the fun action scenes and the goofy lines, there's a sophisticated study in the Western male archetype. It's actually, you know, it's actually a piss take on like basically white privilege because actually the Kurt Russell character, Jack Burton, actually doesn't do anything in that movie. It's, it's, it's the people of Chinatown who are actually the real heroes in that movie. And if you look at, and the more you watch it, the more you actually caught on, oh, that's what this movie is doing. I'll have I mean, to watch it. I have, uh, yeah, to, to be frank with you, I don't have much context about that one. So I'll have to watch it too. Oh, it's a great, it's a great fun. I mean, every, I mean, God, it's, it's, it was made in 1986 and it's still tremendously fun. Uh, and, and that's what makes John Carpenter and John Carpenter was a man who, uh, he, uh, he released The Thing, arguably changing modern horror, a masterpiece. But yeah. it was a box office bomb when it came out. It took the audience about like maybe seven to ten years to really understand why that movie was so brilliant and why that movie changed the game and why it, you know, by amalgamating certain, certain Western tropes into horror and also going for this realism with the rob botten stuff but also being a fascinating study of what it is to be alien but also a fun study and and it was it's it just took the audience like again that's a classic example of a film that took like an audience seven to ten years to actually figure out what the hell it did and, and but when it came out it was considered a bomb it was poorly reviewed you know sometimes these things take time but uh but ultimately like it, it, what are you after are you after look if you're after a sort of life of creating Veblenian disposable art, knock yourself out. Go ahead and create mediocrity, okay? Uh, I'm not going to like it, but I'm sure that, you know, people with short attention spans will. But I believe that there are more people out there who crave and, and who have an intense hunger for something that is ambitious and something that is artistic. I'm going to give you an example, man. So uh, there's this wonderful book by Lucy Elman called Ducks Newburyport. It's 1,000 pages. It's told in a single sentence. It's a masterpiece. It's one of the best novels, the best new novels I've read in the last three years. And, uh, you know, I've been taking this thing around to bars. And uh, people, when I go to the restroom, people come up to me and, I, I, I you know, they, they're picking up the book. They're, they're wondering why this is this exotic object. It's, it's very strange to me because I grew up and in my 20s and 30s. I, uh, I, you know, reading big ass books was something you did, but the reality is, is that reading culture is gradually disappearing. Sad to say. So, I, I, but, but they were fascinated that why anyone in our short attention span age would spend their time reading a one thousand page books. And so I talked to these these kids about it, and they were absolutely fascinated by it. And I probably sold a few more than a few copies with these effusive boosterism on this book. And the reason why is because it's an exotic object. And that confirms a, hypo a hypothesis I have, which is that people are starved for something new, something different. There is always going to be a race for something new and different. But a lot of it is, is also predicated on how you express 
human emotions. All, and, and what I like to do to, again, keep things brand new is I like to go into those places uh, where, we're, where we're talking about emotions that aren't often discussed, that are even embarrassing, that are uh, cringeworthy, but that nevertheless all of us feel. I, I've done that in, uh, uh, I mean, you know, compassion fatigue, which I had mentioned earlier, the season one story. Yeah. I've heard back from so many women who have written me and who've said, Ed, how did, how did you know? This is my life. I've been dealing with how to be a, a formidable professional while also de- disguising my uh, f- uh, problematic personal life. How did you know? Uh, well, how did I know? It's because I, I actually am interested in people and I ask questions and I listen and I am empathetic and I, I know many women who are smart as a whip and independent-minded, hilarious, and they go through this. And I wanted to, uh, to honor this because it was a story that just wasn't being told, but it was a story that nevertheless connected. And, uh, and, and, and you know, you don't know what's going to connect, really. A lot of this is just like, you know, it's like the William Goldman thing. Nobody knows anything. I, I mean, you know, who the hell really knows anything? Who the hell actually really knows what the reception of their work is going to be? So with that in mind, why waste your time trying to calculate? Because when you calculate, it's not always going to work off. You have, you have as, it's as much of a crapshoot to stick to your own instinctive guns as it is to think, that an audience for a film or something from like six years ago is going to come back for a sequel. You know, hey, there's, there is no guarantee. I mean, you can, you can, I mean, like the, the two avatar movies that James Cameron is making right now, there's no way that they're going to be on the same box office level as the first one. And so much time has passed that kids it's basically like you're dealing with like parents bringing their kids to this. Are, are the kids really going to go back to Avatar, the first one? No, it's like the time has passed. But like, look, we'll see. I mean, you know, like there's more time has passed between Avatar and Avatar Two than Terminator and Terminator Two. James Cameron. So anyway, like there is there is no guarantee. So just go with your guns and just like speak from the human heart. You will get an audience if you're if you have high standards and you're doing it right and you have some kind of talent now but there's no guarantee so you may as well roll with the bones man that's it dude we can talk about this for hours and hours and bring up (laughs) examples i wanted just to shift our attention just a bit more on your lessons and what you you have plans ahead so just like to we're speaking before as well about you so you mentioned briefly about how you were using test audiences to before you launched to get their feedback and a few things like that what are some of the lessons you've learned? Well, I mean, you know, honestly, um, I do do testing, even though I am producing art that is distinct and, and, and sui generis, or at least I'd like to think so. I hope so. I'm certainly trying. I do like to get a sense for how something is playing. So I have a number of people in beta, you know, I have beta listeners, I have beta readers. I, I send clips that I've, uh, I send clips from the rough cuts to various beta listeners who are going to be totally hard on me yep. and who are going to identify something that doesn't work. You know, case in point, if, if generally, if multiple people have the same complaint, chances are they're right. Chances are that, that actually that's a, it's probably something you should remedy. And it actually, yeah. So I have this sequence where I have a character who is in a kind of dreamscape and he's tormented by voices and everybody, you know, said, 
hey, this is really good, but I think there's too many voices. And I, I had that for about five or six people. And and actually, I, I, I went ahead and thought about that. And I said, yeah, you know what? I probably um, overcompensated a little bit on that. So so when I actually do the next pass on this episode, I'm going to remove some of those voices because actually in thinking about it, why people were complaining, I realized that it was getting in the way of the character telling a story and uh, distracting from that. And they were right. Uh, I just got a little too eager and excited. So you do things like that just to get a sense of how things play. It doesn't mean you compromise your art. It means what can you do to get your message in the way that you express it out to people in a way so that they actually understand your voice. That's what testing is. I don't think that your art should be like completely compromised. I, I, you know, we're not talking about like tweaking art to get the maximum amount of like, you know, Q, Q ratings and all that. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, we're talking, we're talking about just basic common sense. Like, like what little fine tuning can we do to like, uh, to, to make this, to convey the message of this story out. And then of course there's some things you just like stick with your guns. It's like, you know, there are some, there are some things I'm taking huge chances on, but my feeling is, is that I, I've built up enough trust where the audience I think will go along with me, but I am taking some chances in, in, in depicting certain behaviors, but you know, I feel that, that it just feels true. So, you know, you just, you just, you just, that's what testing serves. Testing should never, ever compromise your vision. It should just merely enhance it. Also, it's helpful when you have really tough beta testers to, to, to learn. Like if, if all of them hate it, and, and then yeah, you, you may want to scrap the story or you may want to reconsider it or, or rewrite it. But I've, I mean, you know, I have some tough cookies and, and sometimes you listen to their notes, sometimes you don't. I, I know what notes are, are helpful for me and it works out pretty well. So any other, any other operational or even mindset sort of any lessons you've learned on on any front that you think that, that'll be uh, useful for people who are starting out a series okay well i would say that workflow and organization um i've learned tons of lessons on that and you know i've managed to improve the workflow and get a better sense of the timetable uh which i need to do because if i want to make this a sustainable operation i have to really be honest about how much time it takes to make this, how much time it takes to uh, put things together. What what can I do to um, improve that? I mean, I already have for season three. I, 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 I mean, I've improved the workflow from season one to season two because I now I figured out a few faster ways of doing things and a few more efficient ways of doing things. And that's just as basically by trial and error, asking around, seeing if there are alternative ways of, of doing what you need to do and implementing them. But uh, but I'm also like, you know, thinking to myself, like, okay, let's say the gray area actually like becomes a huge success for, for whatever reason. And I have enough to uh, I have enough resources to hire another person to help me out in the editing so I can actually turn this around faster. Well, I have a plan in place if that actually happens. I also have a plan in place if we're seeing like, for example, Homecoming, a TV series that was based off of an audio drama. I have a plan in place if like HBO or Amazon or Hulu calls me up and says, hey, we want to turn the, the gray area into a TV series. I'm ready for that. You know, always, I would say to anyone starting out or, or, or in operation is always be evolving and always be improving. And uh, by improving, I'm not just talking about like the actual work itself, but the way you actually put out the work. I am like so organized now in a way that i wasn't for the for the first season i've been going back 
because I have to like take my sound design uh, from the first season and put them into the second season. So I have a continuity because I want this to be a situation where you will not really know a difference from a, from an aesthetic standpoint. If you go from season one to season two, there'll be a continuity there. But I go back to my season one stuff and I'm looking at just looking at the Reaper files, the Reaper projects. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is a mess. This is poorly done. I mean, I, I see over two years how I've become better at this. And I see like, God, what God, this is now. I mean, to give you one example, like, so I had to actually go back to the source sounds for the sound effects. And uh, what I had done in the first season when I, I was just really a giddy man making audio drama, I was having a blast. But what I did is I, I took the source sound and I put it in another program, and then and then I then dragged that new file into Reaper. So what I've done for the second season is I've gone back to the original source sounds. I've actually added the effects in Reaper, put them onto presets and profiles that I can then gradually tweak further over the course of time as I get better because I am getting better, and I and I suspect in like a in a, in when I'm on to season three in a few years, I will, I will already know a lot more about how to, I, I, will, I will be better. So what I'm doing is I'm planning for the future by putting everything on presets so I can see how I did a particular sound effect or a sound design and I can actually implement it better while also working from the original elements. That way there is continuity with the sound, but I can just tweak it a little bit in a way that it sounds better, but and it's it's cleaner and it's more uh, it, it's done more professional and I mean you know for lack of a better word, I imagine that there will be a season three preset that will contain tricks and ideas and skills that I picked up in the intervening years, so I can swap in the season two preset from the source sound and put in the season three preset. So this is what I think. This is how I interpret it. I, I, I am always thinking about how I can do better. And if I don't have that, if I'm doing the same thing over and over again, this ain't fun for me. There's no reason to do it. And, and I'm getting uh, towards the point of making this a self-sustainable audio yeah. drama. So yeah, it has, you have to until yeah, you get to that point, tipping point. So yeah. Well, you know, and the thing is, is like there was always a four-season plan in place for the gray area. And, um, and, and I'm going to stick, stick with that. But the reality is, is that even very successful audio dramas actually reach a particular burning out point. And um, uh, I was, I mean, you know, Wooden Overcoats, a great one, is having its uh, final season in 2020. And that's, you know, Wolf 359, which was considered one of the better audio dramas and, and actually went through some interesting tonal shifts. They actually, unfortunately, became too uh, enslaved to their audience because their audience started making demands. They put themselves in that particular position. And the people who, who work at Wolf 359, and they have another one that, that just came out called Zero Hours, which actually has one of my actors, and I, I finally listened to it. It was really good stuff. But, um, but they became too beholden to the demands of their audience, uh, of fan service. And when you start getting into that, yeah, why would why would why would you continue making something? You know, it's it, it's like you're not making. I mean, on one hand, you're making this for an audience, but like it's not the fans' duty to hold the artist's feet to the fire if like a character dies, which is what happened with Bull Three Five Nine. A character died, and the fans ac accused these incredibly nice people of of because the because the actor was was African American that that, that the 
the producer was racist, which is ridiculous because he has been nothing but inclusive of all sorts of uh, different actors. And so to appease the fans, because he had built up such an audience that it was impossible not to uh, not to like give in to them. He actually brought back this character and uh, revived her, issued a fucking apology. And, and it was just like, you know, and then that was the last season of the show. And I, I have a suspicion that one of the reasons why that show stopped and concluded was because who the hell wants to do that? I, I think that one of the, gr- the great dangers right now and the reason why you have to plan things early so that there is always a decision you know, is is to stick with your artistic guns, and you know you gotta you've gotta like go with it. I mean, the kind of audience who is going to pay for your show is going to trust you even when you do some bold choices, and is not going to demand that a character come exactly. back. Yeah, you know, if 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 you're that kind of fan, you're not really a fan. You're actually, I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to like, you know, it's one thing to quibble with a with a show or a creator. And to not like a particular decision. It's another thing altogether to basically go on Twitter and demand that they revive a character or that they, you know, do something different. Uh, I, it's just like, and and are are you an artist? No, you are not. Did you create the characters? No. Uh, you look, look. Uh, it's it's you can have your fan fiction and all that, but like, I don't think it, I, I I find this personally offensive. It's like me you know not going to a book signing for an author and saying you know what the the problems with your book is that you didn't do things my way it's like look this is a narrative it's a story have some it's yeah i could go on about this at at, at length but you you know what i'm yeah i know it's a good point that we should uh conclude on because um yeah at, at the end of the day as podcasters as media owners People are relying on us to create, deliver the goods, and there, there has to be some feedback. But they're not, not necessarily responsible in be keeping you accountable. So, well, you're uh, not going to please everyone. I mean, even you if can't you, please it, exactly. yeah. You know, so why waste your time trying to please everyone? It's like it's it's sort of related to this notion of zero tolerance, and uh, we will only instill governmental policies in which we have a zero crime rate. You're always going to have crime. You're always going to have people who are not going to like what you do. It's so much easier. It's so much more um, relaxing to just like focus in on how you can make the best art rather than capitulate to some sort of puritanical ultimative bullshit. Yeah, I just... Anyway, I hope I can swear your podcast. You got me... Uh, fired up here (laughs) that's all right yeah first one and interesting one so um (laughs) oh good and and with that i'd love to i'd like to thank you for our chat always time flies when i speak with you and we can always we're done already wow yeah yeah no thanks for having me i'm 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 very honored that you allow me to yammer on your podcast (laughs) we speak soon i'll i look forward to seeing the second season how that plays out so thanks so much yeah definitely definitely very good thank you sir Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.